This is Celebration Church, but it's more than just a building or a church. We have a calling to be a place where people can find a relationship with God instead of religion. A place where freedom is found and acceptance given, and every person can discover their purpose and experience the kind of fulfillment only God can give. Together we will raise, lead, and empower a generation to change the world. Here, Jesus is famous, and all the glory goes to God. This is celebration. This is our family. Welcome home. Good morning. We want to welcome our Appleton and Stevens Point campus. And those of you that are joining us online, great to have you as part of our service today. We're going to invite all of our campuses here in Green Bay. If you go ahead and stand with me, and we are going to together recite the Apostles' Creed. It's our statement of faith here at Celebration Church. It's what we believe. So would you declare it with me today? Let's declare it out loud and declare it into the world around about us as well. Join with me as we do so. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who for us and for our salvation was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day He rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead, and His kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Christian Church, the fellowship of believers, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I'm going to invite our Transition One students, if they would come up on stage here with Pastor Joe and Elizabeth. Uh, You heard a little bit about it here before we hear the Word of God being preached this morning. Our Transition, Transition One students are getting ready at the end of the week to launch into the areas of ministry across the globe and three countries that they're going to be a part of. And we wanted here with the campuses and the Green Bay campus to pray for them. Pastor Joe's going to lead us in that prayer. We're just going to pray over them, pray God's blessing upon them. There's going to be a group that's going into South Africa, a group that's going into India, and a group that's going into Germany, I believe. So we're going to make a big impact. So Pastor Joe, would you lead us? These guys have really knocked it out of the park this year, and it's been a real delight to have them with us here in the church. And uh, spent a lot of time in the classroom with them, and they're all doing great. So we're really proud of you guys, and we can't wait to see what God's going to do through you overseas, all right? Let's all pray with these guys. Would you join me? Jesus, we love you, and we thank you for this opportunity to serve you, Lord, in a foreign country. God, we know that you have people in every corner of the globe, and it is your will that the gospel be preached in every country. And so, Lord, we pray your blessing on these students as they go forward, representing your kingdom, representing uh, our church, representing their churches and families. Lord, that you would bless them with your confidence, your faith, and Lord, that uh, they would stay healthy and strong while they're there, that all of the uh, mechanics of going overseas would work perfectly for them as they go through customs and baggage checks and airplanes and the whole deal and that uh, their host homes will be blessed by their presence. We thank you, Lord, for the cooperating churches in these three countries. Ask your blessing upon them as well. And, Lord, we ask you to uh, enable them and fill them with your spirit of anointing, Lord, as they reach out to people in these foreign lands. Bless them and keep your hand upon them, Father, in Jesus' name. And everybody said, 
Amen. Would you give them another hand as they take their seats this morning? Freezing. (laughs) Good good morning, (laughs) celebration. We are, uh, this morning we're in, where are we? Baltimore. No. Yeah, we're in Baltimore. No, we're not. This morning we're in Baltimore. We're in this one. <laughs> Dork. We're not in Baltimore. We're in Hartford. Where are we? Hartford, Connecticut. Hartford? Okay, here we go. Good morning, celebration. Here we are in Hartford, Connecticut this morning. And uh, we're not in Hawaii anymore. No. Man. It's cold. This is like miserable, brutal. Anyway, uh... This morning, uh, my brother Eddie is coming as we continue this message on forgiveness, the big bishop, Bishop Ed. So uh, we'll be here next week. Hopefully it'll be nicer. (laughs) I don't think it will. It's going to be cold for a long time. We're just getting used to it. You'll be fine. We'll survive. (laughs) Anyway, we love you guys. Enjoy the message this morning and let's welcome Bishop Ed. Bye. Yeah, when you start getting in your 60s, you don't remember where you are. (laughs) Would you stand with me? We're going to read the gospel. Interestingly, the church historical has, for for all the years that this gospel was read, they would stand. Um, And the reason that the church did that was because they understood the Old Testament anticipated the gospels and the presence of Christ in the world, and that the New Testament writings, the epistles, acts, etc., would look back to the life and the teachings of Jesus. So in a way, you're standing because Jesus is what we're about, right? So, right, so here's, here is the gospel. <laughs> Historically, they would respond, praise be to Christ. You know, this guy, this is beautiful. Um, hearing, this is from Matthew 22, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. And one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Amen? Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Forgive me, I'm on the back end of a cold, and so I sound a little bit, I sound like I actually have a man's voice. (laughs) It's a beautiful thing. And uh, uh, also, because, you know, when I have a cold, I usually take some kind of cold medicine. And what I love about that is it just makes me love people more. (laughs) I'm so glad to see you. I want to talk to you this morning about how we are called as Christians to get along with people. That's a tough one because it is true as the old adage goes, the more I get to know some people, the better I like my dog. Right? (laughs) I, I, I actually wish we were in a coffee shop Uh, sitting across from each other um, uh, to talk about some of the nuances of this subject because speaking publicly forces me to uh, 
talk more in generalizations and in ideal terms. And um, that's not really fair because your story may not fit so neatly into generalizations or ideal language, right? Um, the Bible itself seems to send mixed messages uh, that need to be applied in specific situations, right? So we're told in one place, be angry but do not sin. And then in other places we're told that anger is sin or is of the flesh, right? So how does one discern that? How can one be angry and not sin, right? So there's, it depends on the situation. So the topic of relationships can get messy fast. And oftentimes in your specific story and your specific situation you're walking through, it, it's not really the best way to handle relationships in general just by talking about it publicly. But this is the modality we have and we'll make the best of it, right? Now, if you think that, well, this, this should just be simple and you know, we should be able to just tell the truth and, and not make it confusing or nuanced. If you think that, you're probably a terrible person to be in relationship with. That was, was kind of a joke. <laughs> in our gospel text, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. That's the first and greatest commandment. Then he says the second one is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, the, if the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, some of us think, well, we should focus on that first. I mean, it's the greatest commandment. We should focus on it. But, but what if that's wrong? I mean, if you're trying to, to hit a four-minute mile, if you're a runner, um, which would be the greatest challenge, and you currently run a 12-minute mile, uh, should you try to pull off a four-minute one in the next week? Or maybe try to work on a lesser one, right? Maybe you should try to work on an 11-minute mile first because it's a lesser challenge. Um, what if moving toward the first commandment of loving God with everything that we are, what if in this text Jesus is actually inviting us to start with the lesser one, to start with loving people first, that would mean that loving people is a kind of heuristic tool, in other words, a, a teaching tool that would help us learn how to love God. The advantage of that would be that, that we see people and we don't see God. And that if we can learn to love people, that there's something in that practice of loving people that helps us love God. Or to say it another way, if you can't learn how to love people that you actually see, how in the world are you going to love God or know that you're loving God who you don't see? Now this is actually what, what the, the challenge is that is put in 1 John 4. He writes, we love because God loves us. In other words, somehow in his loving of us gives us a capacity we didn't have on our own. If anyone says, I love God yet hates his brother, that person is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. In other words, these are connected to each other. That somehow as I love you as a seen person who's my brother or sister in Christ, it helps me, teaches me that I, how to love God. 
If, if we could see it this way, if on the top of this stage is the highest, greatest place to be, and I'm down here, probably the best way up here is not so much doing this as much as taking a step toward this. So the idea is, if I learn how to love you, I'm on my way to learning how to love God. So the call for us is to learn to assess and discern our love for God by looking at and investigating and discerning how am I doing with people in my world? We could say it this way. The most you love God is the person you love the least. Ouch. Here's the rub on this. In talking about relationships, Jesus said offenses will come. That's usually not a promise we stand on. Right? But it happens. Loving people is a challenge because unless they're exactly like you, we have a problem with them. The minute that people act differently than us, think differently than us, make decisions using values unlike ours, um, have different political preferences or religious ideas than us, we deconstruct. We don't know what to do with them. We don't love them. We want to bring the bow of justice to them, right? And correct them. It doesn't even have to be rank sin for us to get upset. It, it just has to be preferences other than the ones we have, and we can get offended. Um, the problem is we all think and approach life differently. There's nothing more basic than that. If we're going to be loving people, we have to leave room for others to be different from us without assuming that they're wrong. Um, to value the uniqueness of someone else is to value how they, are, how they are different from us, and that's very hard to do. If we're not watchful, we'll, we'll assume that our perspectives on everything is right, that our perspectives are right, and that God has called us to follow people around with a chisel and hammer and attempt to sculpt them into our very own likeness and image, right? Psychologist Kersey and Bates write this, quote, People are different in fundamental ways. They want different things. They have different motives, purposes, aims, values, needs, drives, impulses, and urges. Nothing is more fundamental than that. They believe differently. They think, cognize, conceptualize, perceive, understand, comprehend, and cogitate differently. And of course, manners of acting and emoting governed as they are by wants and beliefs follow suit and differ radically among people. Differences abound, they continue, and are not at all difficult to see if one looks. And it is precisely these variations in behavior and attitude that trigger in us, each of us, a common response. Seeing others around us differing from us we conclude that these differences in individual behavior are but temporary manifestations of madness, badness, stupidity, or sickness. In other words, we rather naturally account for variations in the behavior of others in terms of flaw and affliction. Our job, at least for those near us, would seem to be to correct these flaws. Our project then is to make all those near us just like us, end quote. That's how we love people. And it's naughty. <laughs> Even when people are explicitly sinful, we're called to love them. And if we're close enough to a brother or sister to observe a sin, and if we have a generous enough spirit 
Jesus tells us to go to them and to speak to them. But we're to do it with a heart of love and we're to do it first privately. And then we're to invite the caring of others into it. In Matthew 18, Jesus lays it out. Go to them privately. Then bring someone else that they trust. And if you have to, bring the whole community into it. It's not a power play to force the person to change what they think. It's a, it's a caring play. And Jesus said, if they're not open to you doing that, if you talk to them and then you bring others they care for into it, and if you bring the whole community in and they still refuse to acknowledge it, you're supposed to look at them as like a tax collector. Now, it's natural to think, well, yeah, then snub them. But that's not what Jesus means. Look how Jesus treated the tax collectors. He was nice to them. He loved them. He invited them to eat. He celebrated them. He just didn't expect anything from them. See, I expect something from you if you're a Christ follower. I expect something from you if you come to church with me and we walk life together. Discipleship is a gift. It's a pearl. And if you want to treat it by tromping it under your feet, that's why Jesus said, don't cast pearls before swine. Don't cast pearls before people who will tromp it under their feet. So you're trying to talk to someone who's in sin, and you say, hey, I think you're in sin. They say, I don't agree. Bring somebody else, and you bring the community. If they don't agree, what we're supposed to do is treat them like they're outside of faith. In other words, not expect anything from them. But what, how do you treat the people that you don't expect anything from? With the best care. I mean, I live in New York City, and there's lots of people that hang around asking for money or have bottles. You know, they're just around, and I always try to treat them with respect and with love. I don't expect them to shape up their lives. I try to do whatever I can to love them, be kind to them, give to them. Why? Because I don't expect anything from them. This is our calling. I want to give you three, say, I wish we could stop there and say, you say, okay, well, what about, right? That's the problem with this modality. We can't do that. So just accept everything I say and shut up. Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy. Okay, so so I want to give you you three exercises that I've found helpful in my own life, which I hope might be helpful to you. Um, Exercises in loving people, particularly the people that I can't stand. I just naturally can't stand. These have really helped me. So principle or, or exercise number one is work on seeing people that are in your world as creations of God. Remember that they're, that they're creations of God. And let me just throw some Bible at you. Okay, here's one. Hebrews 12, 9. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father, watch this, the father of our spirits and live? What the Hebrew writer is saying is that every human being may have a natural father and a natural mother, but every human being also has a, a, a the God who has spirited them. God who has given love. Every baby that comes into the world has in some way been also a creation of God, not just humanity. Amen. Right? So what that tells you is when you look at somebody, you're looking at someone that God intentionally created. Not only that, but Genesis 1.26 tells us how, what this looks like. It says, and then God said, let us make human beings in our image and in our likeness and let them rule. People are like, they're images of God. They're like photos of God. There should be something about them that fascinated us. The first thing we think is, God created them. And 
that, that somehow, I mean, you, would you use a photo of God as a dartboard? <laughs> right? Would you, would, you, would you burn it or tear it? And yet that's exactly what we do when we throw darts at people with our hearts or with our mouths or burn them or tear at them. Listen to this text. This is Psalm 139. The psalmist writes, for you created me, or you created my inmost being. You knit me together when I was in my mom, in her womb. I praise you because I'm, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. In other words, I'm intentionally made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in that secret place. Again, referring to the womb. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw me there. You saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in a book, in your book, before one of them came to be. This, this, what the claim biblically, theologically is, every single person God was involved with when they were being formed. And that he intentionally made them. So the thing that makes you laugh, the thing that makes you cry, the, thing that, the interests that you have are all like fingerprints of God in your life. Not just your life because you're a Christian. Your life before you could ever be a Christian. You were in the womb. Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I had thoughts about you before you even showed up in the world. <laughs> this is Acts 17. This is Paul talking to rank pagans who are worshiping false stuff, idols and weirdnesses. And, and Paul says in verse 20, starting verse 24, Acts 17, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands like you guys are building here. You're confused, he's saying. And he doesn't, he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all people, not just some people, not just religious people, not just good people, not just Christian people, he gives all people life and breath and everything else. He's wildly giving to humanity. For from one person, God made every nation of people, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined for all people the time set for them. In other words, the time in history they would be born intentionally. And the exact places, geography, Geographically, the exact places where they should live. Why did God do this? God did this so that people anywhere would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he's not far from each of us. For in him, we, all of us, live and move and have our being. How many ever heard that line? In him we live and move. We used to sing a song. In him we live and move and have our being. Some of you remember that. <laughs> but in him we live and move and have our being. How many have heard that text before? He's talking about that all of us, and you know what's crazy about that is that's actually a quote from a, a, a hymn to Zeus. But Paul doesn't have a problem with it. He's going, let me show you this. Because what he's saying is, listen, on some level, no matter who you are, Zeus person, Christian person, Jewish person, Hindu person, Muslim person, it doesn't matter who you are. You're in God on some way. He's created you. He intended 
wanted you to be here. In this time, in this place, what is he saying? Everyone you look at, every person you encounter is a dream of God come true. This means that every person matters to God. The question is, do they matter to you? It doesn't matter if you're Pentecostal, Evangelical, Roman Catholic, Lutheran, all matter to God. It doesn't matter if you're Muslim, Hindu, Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Socialist, Communist, a Bears fan. That's a hard one for me. No, don't love Bears fan, just kidding. <laughs> your terrible supervisor, your annoying coworker, your neighbor who lets his dog poo on your lawn. All men, all women, transgender people, people of all sexual orientations, straight, gay, roaming, rich, poor, naughty, nice, it doesn't matter. People are dreams of God come true irrespective of who they are or what they do. And love starts there. We must see people first before we see what people do. In fact, when we see the negative and the hateful and the wrong and the sinful that people do, it shouldn't make us mad, it should make us sad. It should grieve us because we care for them first. Not because we're offended that they're doing something that's not right. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about ministry being a supernatural event where people are transformed as the Holy Spirit writes on the tablets of human hearts. What a cool imagery. He's actually using imagery from the Old Testament where the finger of God writes on the tablets of stone. You remember that from the movie? I mean, from the Bible? <coughs> where God's finger writes the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments on the, on the stone and hews it out and Moses brings it down. See, the, the finger of God wrote that into rock. And so Paul resources that. He said, just like the finger of God wrote on the tablets of, of stone, as we speak, our confidence is not in ourselves, but our confidence is in God who writes as we speak on the tablets of human hearts. That's why when you hear preaching or you hear scripture, you know how sometimes you feel something going on inside you beyond what the person's saying? It's like the spirit is weaving into your soul something beyond what's being said. The, the disciples walking with Jesus on the road to Emmaus, they said, were not our hearts burning within us while he explained the scriptures to us? Amen. What was going on there? The spirit of God was writing on their hearts while they were hearing scripture. Paul says, that's what ministry is. It's not what we do. It's what God does while we, we do what we do. Amen. But what Paul says that sets this up in order for this to happen, in order to prepare himself as a minister, or if you as a mom, or you as a dad, or you as an employer, you as an employer, if you want God to use you, if you want God to somehow ride and light upon your words and your eyes and your smile and your care, if you want God to actually do something supernatural while you just live natural, Paul says this, verse two, you yourselves are our letter, written on our 
hearts, known and read by everybody. What's he saying? In order for me to write on your hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit, I've let the Holy Spirit write you on my heart. You matter to me. I'm not just preaching at you. I'm not just talking at you. I'm not just correcting you. I've let you touch me. I've let the value of your life capture me. I've let the preciousness and the plan that God had in mind for you touch me so that when I deal with you, I deal with you on some degree of awe. You're written on my heart. Are people written on your heart? Or are you just mad at them? The second exercise, and I, I won't be able to give you the third, so you're just going to have to fail. But um, <laughs> the second exercise I would urge you to practice is discernment. Discernment in Scripture is the hunt for what God is doing and the hunt for what not, is not of God. It's doing a where's Waldo activity on a person a situation. Looking for where the kingdom of God is and looking for where the kingdom of darkness is. I wish this was a simple binary exercise where it's either the kingdom of God or it's the kingdom of darkness. That would keep it simple. You know, we look at Julie, we look at her life, we go, my goodness, the kingdom of God is strong in Julie's life. Or we look at Pete over there. Oh, he's just got the kingdom of darkness preponderating over his life. Just, you know, check him off as one to avoid. I wish it were that simple, but it's not. Julie is both of the kingdom of God and of the kingdom of darkness. So is Pete. It turns out that we're all a mixed bag a little bit of good and a little bit of evil. Just think about yourself, right? I bet you have lots of good going on and lots of not so good things going on. So, in fact, I would bet that some of you have flat out evil dancing around in your life from time to time, if only in just your mind. And if it were broadcast to everybody, we would be horrified. Paul is clear in his writings. And so is the rest of the New Testament. The Christians do at times give place to the devil. Christians. And he warns us not to do so. He says that Satan will appear to us as, a, as an angel of light and we get tricked. Scripture is clear that believers occasionally harbor attitudes that are demonic and not Christian, not godly, while we're holding on to the truth that is godly. Here's a classic example. This is James 3. Look at this one. It'll mess with you. Who is wise, James writes? Who is understanding among you? I am, right? <laughs> well, let this person, this wise and understanding person, show it, not by preaching a lot or telling everybody what to think, but by his good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. One version kind of suggests you actually lie against the truth. Even though you hold the truth, you're lying against it. He says, such wisdom does not come from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. I mean, even though you have wisdom, even though you have understanding, what you wrap it in, what kind of attitudes you have, what kind of motives you have can actually make the wisdom of God into something that's of the devil. 
For where you have envy and selfish ambition, you find disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all in the Bible. Is that what it says? I mean, it certainly is. But watch what it says. The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers, peacemakers, people that fight to make sure there's nothing between us, who sow in peace, raise a harvest of right. You wanna make things right? Learn to be a peacemaker. They are the sons and daughters of God. See, Paul claimed that Satan works to dull our love for God, so we must be careful. He claimed that Satan blinds the minds of believers and that we should expect it and guard against it. This is called discerning. What does that mean? Expect that the devil is gonna try to influence us and that in some ways he is. We should be suspicious of it. Paul said that Christians struggle not with flesh and blood, but with the demonic as a matter of course in our daily lives. In 2 Corinthians 10, he writes this, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons that we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, we have this divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. This is within ourselves. And we are ready to punish every act of disobedience once our, your obedience is complete. This is a normal day for a believer. <laughs> Struggle. War, the presence of good and evil is in all of us. You shouldn't panic when you find evil. You should be glad that you discerned it and begin to pray about how you can bring good to it in yourself and in those who are around you. This only works if you understand what evil is. It's not something that is a power some people think it's a power, like demons have this power and they're gonna take over, or Lord Voldemort, <laughs> right? Or Darth Vader. Or they think of evil as being like a, a drop of botulism, like if somebody came before the service and with the Eucharist and started putting botulism in each drop in each little cup, there'd be evil in them cups, Right? That's what you think. But that's not how the scripture talks about evil. The Christian theology deals with evil not so much as a thing or a power, but as the absence or paling of good. It's when things that are good get less good. Evil is like darkness. Darkness isn't a thing. It's the absence of light. You take away all light and you have perfect darkness. Can you add darkness? No, because darkness isn't a thing. It's the absence of. The same thing with heat. You can have heat, you can have cold. When you take away all heat, what do you have? Cold. When you get to perfect zero or you get to absolute zero and there's absolutely no heat, can you add cold? No, because cold isn't a thing. It's the absence of. Evil is only the absence of good. So what does that mean? I have to shut up. Our response to evil should not be to run away from it as though it's a power. Our response to evil should be to repair, to lean in, and to good it. So, stay.
stand up with me. I'm out of time. Sorry, stand up in the, in the, um, uh, at the, at the um, campuses. Thank you. 60s. And let's just put on our hands for just a minute. Let's see if the Holy Spirit might bring someone to our minds who we have not thought of as a creation of God first. We've let their stupidity or their meanness or their evil or their whatever dominate over the truth that their dreams of God come true. And for just a minute, let's discern the fact that even though there might be lots of darkness, they're not completely dark or it would be nothing. There's some good. And help us, instead of being afraid of that, ask the question, how can I contribute good? It may only be just being a kind thought at them. It may only be not speaking evil about them and making things worse. It might be you actually having a conversation with them. I, I don't, it's, every story is so different and things get really complicated really quickly. But see this relationship as a heuristic tool, as a teaching tool for how you can love God. Because you can only love God through learning how to love people. Spirit of God, help us. God, you said you poured out your spirit in our hearts so that the love of God might be accessible to us. Help us love, not just with human love, but with your love, we pray, through Christ our Lord. Amen.